0: You're listening to Inside North Central Massachusetts, powered by the North Central Massachusetts Chamber of Commerce. Hello, and welcome to the Inside North Central Massachusetts podcast. I'm your host Travis Condon. This is part of our election series, and today we're joined by Salem Mayor Kim Driscoll. She's a Democratic candidate for lieutenant governor. The Democratic primary will be held on September 6th, and the general election is scheduled for November. Uh, Mayor Kim Driscoll became Salem's first woman mayor back in 2006. She's also spent time as the chair of the North Shore Coalition on the Metropolitan Area Planning Council and previously served on the Massachusetts Workforce Development Board. She currently serves on the Massachusetts Seaport Economic Council and the Massachusetts Economic Development Planning Council, Mayor Driscoll also previously served as former president of the Massachusetts Municipal Association, as well as the Massachusetts Mayors Association, and as a member of the United States Conference of Mayors. Mayor Driscoll, thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thanks for having me, Travis. Excited to uh, talk a little bit about what makes us all tick in this state.
0: (laughs) Well, we're happy to have you join us today. And one of the big things I think everyone wants to know is, why do you want to run for Lieutenant Governor now?
1: You know, I actually think this is the perfect time for someone with my experience to, um, you know, seek a seat in the, in the State House and higher office. Given what we've been through the last couple of years, I really do think we're at this inflection point in our Commonwealth as we um, get into the next, go into the head into the next phase of this pandemic, having individuals that have experience on the ground like myself serving as a mayor, the CEO of my community, working hard to both address COVID and also uh, tackle our recovery efforts. Uh, at the same time, working on things like race equity and affordable housing, knowing that we're not going to outrun climate change. There's so many challenges that we have as a Commonwealth. And those of us who have been on the front lines of government as a mayor, what I call part of the, the get stuff done wing of government, um, I think really have an opportunity to take that experience and that know-how, that sense of urgency and that accountability. There's no hiding in a job like mine. Like every day you've got to come to work and solve problems. And I'm, I'm hoping that experience and skill set can be a real Um, useful asset to the next governor, uh, serving in in the state house and bringing those skill sets to Beacon Hill. Can you tell us a little
0: bit more about your background as mayor? Um, You served as mayor of Salem since 2006. In addition to dealing with the pandemic, what are some of the other things that you've dealt with that you think really prepare you for this role?
1: Sure, sure. Um, You know, I'm really proud that I've spent a couple of decades involved in local government. I worked for the city of Chelsea early in my career. As their chief legal counsel, and later as their deputy city manager, as they came out of receivership, and that really gave me a solid understanding of like what happens when local government fails, um, and who pays the price for that. That's guided me um, as in my years as mayor here in Salem. I feel fortunate to be working in a working, living, and leading a hip historic city. But it certainly wasn't always that way. Um, when I first came into office, we were looking at multi-million dollar deficits tied to some really bad decisions around. our our city's health insurance and benefit structure. Um, We had a lot to tackle. Um, We've been through a recession just shortly after taking office as well, where investment wasn't plentiful. It was really uh, tough times in terms of trying to have the revenue necessary to do the jobs and requirements that people were expecting out of local government. And we've worked hard, I think, to partner with our business community, uh, whether that's from tourism to healthcare and higher ed, to really try and maximize Salem's opportunities. And I'm grateful to be in a position now where we've professionalized city finances. We really have created a culture of always wanting to improve here, really looking for innovative ways to take on the the challenges that confront every local municipality and then really act to do something about it. I think the city is far better off um, than when I started, and that has a lot to do with a whole collection of people. There's no one person who can really help transform and revitalize the city. It takes public private partnerships, working with your nonprofits and really trying to strengthen every aspect of the work that we do. Um, and I think those are uh, important experiences I bring, battle scars, and often, uh, and oftentimes the real know-how that you need a strong state partner. Every city in town uh, needs the state to be, um, to be there with them, um, sometimes as a carrot offering resources, sometimes as a stick to get us in line, but sometimes to just get out of the way. Um, but having done this work, um, I really think that those skill sets can serve me well and hopefully serve communities across the Commonwealth well, if I'm uh, fortunate enough to be elected lieutenant governor.
0: Now, if you are fortunate enough to be elected as lieutenant governor, what would be your first priority in supporting the next administration?
1: Yeah, I mean, as we come out of this pandemic, I think we're not going back to the way we did things. I don't think we're going to do exactly what we're doing now. It can be fairly chaotic in a number of areas. And we know um, you know, what that next phase looks like, given we have sub- significant, you know, um, worker shortages, we have uh, an opportunity where people are right now able to live anywhere and maybe work in Massachusetts with so much remote work happening. I think front and center is still going to be COVID recovery um, and response efforts. We're hoping there's not another surge, another Greek letter that we need to worry about with respect to COVID. That's going to take front and center, I think, uh, you know, on on any uh, administration's forefront, you can't lose sight of that. But after that, it's tackling the issues that existed even pre-COVID and recognizing that many of them were even more aware of. Um, Our schools weren't working great. I'm a mayor of a gateway city and our schools weren't working as well as we'd like them to. The challenges that our communities and families have um, who are in gateway cities. You know, how do we really look at ways that are going to make the lives of the people who live here easier? For me, that means tackling affordable housing, really working um, hand in hand with city leaders, with nonprofit housing Uh, um, developers with private housing developers to tackle the housing shortage. Uh, That means thinking about systems. Um, If every four-year-old in Alabama can have a high-quality pre-K experience, this was recently highlighted in the Boston Globe, we know we need to invest in those sorts of programs, not only to serve children, but to serve the future prosperity of our state. I think uh, when it comes to climate change, it really is a, a crisis that we're facing. We haven't worked deep enough or fast enough when you compare us to places like Europe and many of our cities and towns reflect more of a characteristic of European cities than they do of someplace out in you know the Western part of our own country. Um, we have a lot of work to do. Um, I'm proud of the work we've done in my community trying to tackle those, but it doesn't happen alone. So I think bringing that, uh, both transparent, accountable approach to governing and partnering with cities and towns to tackle some of those challenges would be first and foremost forefront on my mind.
0: And we're going to talk about a number of those priorities in more depth later on in the conversation. The next thing I do want to ask, you mentioned at the start, obviously, you've been on the forefront of this pandemic as mayor of Salem uh, since the start of this pandemic back in early 2020. How do you feel the current administration is handling the pandemic? And if elected to serve as lieutenant governor, uh, what do you think needs to be done differently? And what would you advocate to be done differently?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think overall, we've seen a really strong response from Massachusetts. Um, We are leading the nation on many fronts, from vaccination rates um, to testing, to so much of the the sort of the blocking and tackling that went into fighting COVID. Um, And I think we ought to say, um, we ought to applaud our collective efforts as a Commonwealth for really coming together. I think we're all collectively sick and tired of it right now, as many people are across the country. Um, and, And I think we need to stay vigilant. So the experience we saw during Omicron was very much um, patchwork, like cities and towns were doing different things with regard to masks and vaccines, and I think it exacerbated the circumstances. So having a more collective vision that's tied, or that starts to tie regions together, if we think about um, how, you know, the next wave of a pandemic, or God forbid, another pandemic tackles, uh, impacts our communities, we can't be fighting at 351 cities and towns at a time, we need to think about how do we strengthen and, and the collaboration opportunities regionally, and really knit together a system of, of response as opposed to one city and town, one Board of Health at a time. I think other areas would be the, we know there are disparities, um, and it's typically people of color, individuals who are economically disadvantaged that didn't have the same access to health care, didn't have the sa- that don't have the same access to health care, also didn't have the same access to things like vaccines and testing early. How do we um, ensure going forward? Again, that it's not a patchwork of community health centers and nonprofit partners that we're working collectively to strengthen those relationships so we can push go. You know, some of the things that we did at the local level um, in Salem, within two weeks, we set up a regional quarantine site for our homeless population with surrounding communities. Like that sense of urgency was necessary. That ingenuity that we had to find during COVID, you know, how do we put that kind of force to work when it's not COVID so we're ready for the next pandemic or catastrophe or set of circumstances that we need to respond to. And a lot of that could really be tied to prevention. We know we haven't spent enough in public health. Many of our local cities and towns don't have either the technical expertise or personnel and resources to really think about prevention um, of the things that we know we already can cure, you know, anything from heart disease to diabetes to childhood obesity. There are efforts that if we put our collective um, interest around preservation, around prevention, and really have uh, more regional force uh, with that technical know-how. Just keeping data, track of public health data and statistics would put us in a better position than what we are doing throughout this pandemic. So, so overall, like I, I said, I think that we're fortunate that we followed the science and really uh, buckled down as a, as a set of communities and individuals within the Commonwealth, but ideally you'd want to really have a more regional response to this effort going forward.
0: Uh, The pandemic has actually exacerbated a number of existing issues in some of the different systems we have here in the Commonwealth. One of the ones that affects a lot of our listeners has to do with the unemployment insurance trust fund. Um, Mm -hmm. Even businesses who kept their full workforce saw increases to their contribution rate this year, despite ARPA funds even being appropriated to it. What would you propose as the long term solution to the matter if you're elected to serve as lieutenant
1: governor? I mean, there's no doubt that the unemployment system is going to need to have some subsidies from the Commonwealth. We have some federal funding to help with that. We don't want to tax employers as they're coming out of COVID, many of whom were definitely impacted. I think about my city that has a strong tourism and hospitality um, component to our workforce. Um, those were folks who didn't have customers coming through the door. Right? It wasn't a question that they weren't busy. Um, they didn't have the opportunity to, to um you know, have customers coming in because everything was shut down. So that was, that was necessary, and it was also a sort of, a, you know, set of circumstances that was forced upon them. And so how do we make up for that? In my mind, it's taking some federal resources to drive down the cost of that. You know, cities and towns are typically not part of the unemployment insurance system, um, so that means we pay as you go on your own. I don't necessarily feel like that's probably a, a viable alternative for our business community. They're used to having a system that um, has sort of a shared risk component to it, And I think that means in this instance, when you have such a catastrophic circumstance, um, government is going to have to step in to try and help subsidize the cost of that because we wanted people to be able to access unemployment, we'd have a lot more people sort of looking for other alternatives if they didn't have that, um, you know, that, that to rely on uh, during this
0: pandemic. you mentioned tourism, and I know that tourism is Salem's bread and butter. Uh, yeah. Tourism is also the third largest industry in the state. And as you mentioned, one of the hardest hit, unfortunately, by the pandemic. The thing is with Massachusetts, it's also falls near the bottom of the pack or compared to other states in terms of our investment into tourism and marketing to support the industry. How would you help the North Central Massachusetts region and the state better capitalize on tourism and be better poised to compete with other states that are also trying to grow their own market share at our state? It's expense
1: yeah there's no doubt that we need to spend um, additional resources to support our tourism and hospitality industry as you mentioned third you know third uh, biggest industry in Massachusetts and it supports so much it not only affects visitors who are coming here um, it impacts the quality of life of the communities that have tourism and hospitality as a, as a center as a centerpiece of their economy and it's not just um, the typical things you, you would visit like a museum or a historic attraction, You know those places have tradespeople. They need to be clean. They have a whole service industry connected with it. The concentric circles tied to tourism are pretty broad. Um, Here in Salem, we have done our fair share to try and invest our visitor dollars back into supporting the visitor industry. We take a 50% of our hotel motel tax revenues and redistribute that to our tourism destination uh, partner called Destination Salem, our destination marketing organization, and the goal is to promote and market our community. You know to Uh, the the wider world so that we can accommodate a growing uh, tourism business. It's worked like a charm. We started this several years ago. What we're seeing are more people coming to Salem, what we call more heads in beds. Um, And that not only gives us the revenue that comes from people coming to enjoy those places, they're eating in restaurants, they're staying in hotels longer, that begets more additional hotel motel revenues, both to the city and the state. Let's keep in mind that all of us who have hotels, uh, a portion of that revenue is going back to the state government. And how do we get a fair share of that to reinvest in tourism promotion? We have an embarrassment of riches in this state when it comes to attractions and history. We like to say there's a story in every mile. We need to tell that to other folks. Yes, we're going to have people coming because, because Salem's known for the witch trials or for the great age of sail or for the many other things that have happened here. And Boston has its history, and it's wonderful. But we are in competition with other places, as you mentioned. People can spend their leisure dollars in lots of locations, and we need to make sure they're thinking about Massachusetts uh, as as a place to come and visit and make it easy for them to do so. Um, We have a number of regional visitor um, center bureaus and visitor um, DMOs of their own that work closely within their regions. They know how to market their regions, but we need a partner at the state level to to help amplify those efforts when you're thinking about both international tourists and really trying to have a strong national marketing uh, theme and campaign for bringing people to Massachusetts. Once they get here, we can fight over them, right? But we want them here. And we know that if you, um, every single dollar that's invested in tourism really comes back to us when visitors come here and spend money. Um, it's great for the economy. It's an pro- important part of the history and the story we need to tell about what happened here in Massachusetts, integral to the founding of our country. Um, and then from that, we have ecotourism uh, in both central and Western Mass. There's so much to see and do There's no doubt that investing in tourism and hospitality is putting money back into all of our regions, and I'm a strong advocate for that. Um, We like to think of the life sciences, another wonderful industry, something we want to invest in. We're giving out serious tax credits to the movie industry. Everyone likes seeing a movie filmed here or there, but these are dollars that actually help locals and support that workforce service and hospitality industry that's so key to so many of our communities. So I hope to see more of our state uh, visitor-generated dollars going back into uh, tourism and marketing for the overall Commonwealth and regional efforts. Businesses
0: across North Central Massachusetts and really the entire Commonwealth are facing a tight labor market as the, uh, the great resignation continues now in 2022. If you're elected, um, how would you recommend that the next administration address this issue?
1: You know, it's really tricky because we're seeing it across all spectrums, right? Um, our, our restaurants are having a tough time staffing up. Our cybersecurity firms are having a tough time staffing up, and even cities and towns. It used to be a time when, for every municipal job, you had 10 applicants. And now we have one applicant for every 10 jobs. So we're all seeing the pinch of this um, staffing shortage and this uh, this talent pool that is in high demand. Um, From my perspective, we have some opportunities to make sure we're retraining individuals um, who are interested in taking on some of the jobs that are open here. you know, we know labs continue to grow. I mean, the life sciences industry is so strong in Massachusetts. How do we make sure that's just not benefiting, uh, you know, particular geographic regions within the Commonwealth, but also training up? There's some great programs in uh, the, the city of Gloucester has a program called Gloucester Genomics, which treat, um, trains lab techs right out of high school and creates a ladder uh, for students who are interested in then going to college uh, to, to learn a trade that gives them an opening into a fast-growing field within the Commonwealth. For uh, places like my community and many others, we're looking at our high schools to be able to provide additional career pathways and job experiences for our students. And our students are telling us they want that, right? They want to be engaged in both hands-on learning opportunities and getting some experience, whether that's through internships or actual workforce opportunities while they're a student. So many of our high schools are looking at uh, career tech fields. And how is that aligned with where our staffer shortages are? So we know cybersecurity, in uh, infotech services, web design, programming, those are areas where we know there are shortages and frankly, they're portable skills. We know healthcare, we've got uh, a medical assisting program and healthcare assisting programs that we're growing out of our high school. These are also jobs that promote ladders. So you can start out maybe as a CNA and end up becoming a nurse or a nurse anesthetist or you know a doctor, anything along that way. Um, in my mind, our young people are telling us they want those experiences, it's also, providing them with an opportunity for a career path, whether they choose college right away or a ladder among, among uh, college experience. Um, lear- leaving high school with a certificate, a skill set, a mastery in something is really, really important, um, especially in gateway cities, where we still know we have um, you know, a percentage of students who aren't necessarily going to right away go to college. We also are focusing on things like early college. Now, that's a younger component of the workforce. I know when we think about uh, teenagers, but giving those, them those experiences to then enter the workforce is helpful. I also think we have a fair amount of people who may have retired early or left the current job that they're in, right? The great, as you said, resignation. There was also a great retirement. There might be people who are interested in doing something different than they were doing before. How do we make those retraining opportunities easy? Um, uh, if you were in one field, what's the easy lift or shift to get to another? And the last piece I'll say is I think we have a lot of people who are working in positions that have skill sets where they could do something else. And how do we identify those within those individuals within our region and make it easy for them to train up? We work closely with our workforce investment board here, our WIB, um, to ensure that some of the hard to find positions from welders to auto tech, auto um, mechanics and others. um, If you're in a job or in a job that you don't like or in a job that you think uh, you can do better in, uh, breaking down barriers for training means transportation, childcare, no fee you know to to undertake uh, the training that you're looking for and then tying it to a job afterwards we need to tell those stories like this could be you right um and and give people the the space that they that they need in terms of breaking down barriers around childcare and transportation to make it easy to get that training with a job lined up at the end Um, we're looking at even some municipal academies not just as one city but as a collection of cities we need cdls and hoisting licenses and tree climbers you need some technical skills that you can be trained in, and there is a job waiting for you in one of our communities when you're done with that. More of the uh, firming up of that pipeline, I think, will help us all in a, a myriad of industries. But it's front and center as we think about really rebounding out of COVID that we have um, these jobs filled from from healthcare to hospitality.
0: As we continue kind of this COVID talk for, for one more question, uh, when you look at how folks have been affected by this. We know that underserved populations have been disproportionately affected here in North central Massachusetts. We have a very diverse population, a number of underserved populations. So as we look to navigate recovery, how do we ensure equitable recovery for North central Massachusetts and for other populations across the state to make sure that these folks don't fall behind?
1: I mean, I think that's the question, right? We already know we've had a Commonwealth that's very successful for a lot of people, but have huge income gaps, income and gaps. And oftentimes that is reliant on zip codes and communities of color and folks who start out economically disadvantaged who, who are not able to overcome that. Um, in my mind, I think key to that are, you know, some of the social determinants of health are around housing. Um, and and I'll, I'll, I'll pick on that one because it's near and dear to my heart. You used to be able to pour coffee and pour beer for a living and find an apartment in Salem that you could afford. That is becoming much, much harder, if not impossible to do, as you have housing prices that are just rising way faster than anybody's income or ability to keep up with that. And we know that housing can often be the largest part of anyone's, um, you know, monthly payout in terms of what they need uh, coming out of their their job, their, their income. So it, um, the ability for us to, um, to put in place programs that can reduce the cost of housing across all of our communities. I was on with... Um, a group of um, individuals and local leaders uh, from one of the hill hill towns out in Worthington who are talking about affordable housing challenges there, like every corner of the Commonwealth. It might be a little different. It's a much more rural community, but folks there are still struggling to keep a roof over their head. And if you don't have a stable, affordable, accessible roof over your head, you're probably not eating well. You've got some food security issues. You've got um, health issues. It's hard to really focus on education. We know the impacts of that. So in my mind, we need to focus on key areas that um, can can make it easier for people who are already feeling the pinch of um, um, income inequality um, around housing, around uh, uh, certainly around uh, access to health care. That certainly came, that was very clear during this pandemic, uh, the situation of haves and have nots. We've got wonderful community health centers. How do we ensure that they're able to do the work they do best when it comes to serving uh, individuals in their communities in their neighborhoods? Um, but tying the work that we're doing at the state house um, and state level with resources. Coming out of this pandemic, the good news is we may not have to have a scarcity mindset. We've got federal resources. The state has a surplus. How can we think about using these dollars in a way that's going to lead to longer-term economic prosperity? Housing affordability is key in that. In, to that in my mind. Ensuring that people have adequacy to public health. We're fortunate to live in a state that does provide uh, higher um, health access uh, than many other places, but it's, it's certainly not perfect. And then thinking about food insecurities, our, our uh, food pantry here quadrupled in terms of the number of individuals they were serving during, uh, during COVID. And, you know, guess what? Now we know we can do that. How do we think about linking all of those systems that people rely on so that we're not uh, worried about food insecurities and food deserts? and that you have access to housing. And then the last link would be transportation. We know that for so many, depending on where you're living, uh, that rural community I was just talking about out of Worthington, um, that's not a place that you can necessarily walk and bike everywhere. And we can do a lot of that in my community, and we wanna, we wanna certainly provide more options than single occupancy vehicles. But what's that transportation system look like that gets people around? Here in Salem, I'll give you one example. We have a ride share service called Skipper. It's very affordable, a dollar a ride available for anybody. Um, It works on like an Uber-like platform and it gives you a nearly free ride to wherever you need to go. It's serving, the origin of the rides are coming from our most economically disadvantaged neighborhoods, often serving people who don't own a car. And where are they going? They're going to the grocery store, they're going to the hospital, they're going to the train station. Those are top three destinations. And that says to me, it's not, uh, these are not joy rides. These are places that people need to go. And we're so grateful to have this transportation system set up here, but we're one city. How do we make sure that network is available and those options are available? That means regional transport, it means investing in regional transportation and, and Central and Western Mass. We often think about the T, there's other, there's other transportation needs that are statewide. And I think, as I said, we're not necessarily gonna have to have a scarcity mindset. How do we invest these dollars in that infrastructure system that gives people access to jobs to health to housing.
0: And transportation investment is always been a huge uh, subject of conversation here in North Central Massachusetts and some of the other underserved regions. Uh, congestion on Route 2 is a major issue in the region. A uh, lack of transportation options, also a barrier for, uh, as you mentioned, getting the essentials, but also as a barrier of employment for many. So when you look at some of the regions out here, you know, does it involve Im- implementing that skipper system that you talked about? Or, or what other things could your administration be doing
1: if you're elected as lieutenant governor? You know, I think the, the thing that I love most about the work that I do um, and the work that we've done um, um, as, a, as a region is that we rely on the expertise within our cities um, to help us uh, come up with the best solutions. So, and, we, and I would also say, like, this culture of willingness to try things. Some things are going to work, some things aren't. You're going to learn a lot from the things that don't to make it better for the things that will. Um, in, in my mind, going to each of our regional entities, our local leaders our our public-private partners and talking about where are the destinations that people need to go to and what's the best way to serve them. Transportation technology has come a long way in the last decade. Um, uh, You know, 10 years ago, a a Salem skipper probably wouldn't have been something that we could have in place here. It's available now because of some of the technology that exists, the platform, the ability to put multiple people in a ride in in a convenient and efficient way to really cut down on those head times makes it Possible. There may be something else that works. This is a van. Maybe it needs to be a larger passenger vehicle. But we have regional leaders in each of our uh, cities and towns that can help us determine and better understand where folks want to go. I was talking with some of the um, community college um, officials uh, on this call in particular I mentioned before, like access students trying to better themselves uh, with certificate programs and get to higher ed without any transportation, and we still, you know, we still have some of our challenges here. We have two community college campuses in Essex County, one's in Lynn, one's in Danvers, one's off a highway in Danvers, there isn't a bus route to get to it. We need a network, Um, we can't have a bunch of one-offs, so thinking about how we bring to bear regional entities, keying up destinations, having the state support the feasibility and technical analysis, that's one way right away. Uh, We were fortunate that we got a grant uh, from the Tufts Foundation to help us kind of map out our transportation strategy that we uh, operationalized. But uh, that you can't underscore the need for the technical assistance to do that feasibility analysis for where are people going to go and how do we leverage and take advantage of some of the things that are working. And there are a number of regional entities who have set up, whether it's a workplace shuttle system or uh, alternative ways to move people to where they need to go as a destination. Um, looking at those, getting that technical analysis to see what might be possible to grow and expand those, and listening to what's happening on the ground locally. It's not going to be a top-down town approach. It's really going to be from uh, these job sectors and destination areas and working together to put in place uh, additional transportation options with state resources to help um, tease out uh,
0: availability. The Commonwealth is working towards their zero carbon emissions by 2050. Is this the right approach to address climate change? Or if you don't believe that it is, how can we approach the climate change issue in a way that's going to be affordable for businesses and for residents?
1: You know, I think it's really critical that we ensure that we um, have this legislation and that we're implementing it. It's one thing to um, decide that we want to have a date on paper to, to, to reduce carbon, uh, to reduce our, our carbon commitments as a state. It's another thing to actually operationalize and implement it. Um, I can tell you a little bit about our experience locally and why I'm so heartened by the fact that um, this is something that's doable. Um, the City of Salem and the City of Beverly came together to form um, a climate action plan. It's called Resilient Together. And the whole goal was we're communities that both share a coastline that uh, both have a hospital and have a college. Um, We have a lot of similarities, a lot of characteristics. How do we work together to put in place both policies and projects aimed at making our communities more climate resilient? Um, And we walked away from that, not only knowing a full assessment of what's contributing most to our greenhouse gas emissions, but also with a to-do list, an action plan to-do list of the steps that we can take, both individually and collectively as cities, to try and hit our goals of being Uh, Carbon neutral by 2050 or sooner is what we what we'd prefer. So from the state's perspective, having that, I think it's landmark legislation. Hooray! We ought to all be giving ourselves a real pat on the back that we're uh, taking climate change seriously and want to act. But the want to act part is going to be the really you know is going to be the hard part because we're talking about both behavioral changes and putting in place programs, as you mentioned. uh, Businesses, I think, want to be good green partners, but how do they do that? I'm excited about some of the incentives that we see coming out of a revamped mass save program. Um, if we go into each community in each region really having their own how do we get to net zero plan. Uh, we know transportation is a large part of that in most places followed by buildings and what sort of building conversions make the most sense. How as uh, state leaders can we help incentivize and subsidize that along with the utility industry to put us on a path to a greener future. Um, as I mentioned, the, the, the Salem Skipper program is as much about getting people around, but also reducing single occupancy vehicles, um, looking at adaptation and mitigation measures. Uh, as a coastal community, we know the damages from storm surge. We're not going to outrun it. What kind of action steps can we take? We can't do it all. It can sometimes feel, Travis, like you're eating an elephant, right? How do you do it? And it's sort of like one bite at a time, but with a thorough plan And with a strong state partner, there's a a couple of different pieces of legislation that are aimed at creating a sustainable fund to help not only cities and towns, but our state overall really um, live up to the values and the requirements that are built into the legislation that you mentioned earlier.
0: Now, if you had 60 seconds to convince me or one of our listeners as to why uh, you should be your party's nominee for lieutenant governor, why you should be lieutenant governor, what would you say? And yes, we are going to time you. (laughs)
1: Um, You know, I think as we enter the next phase of the pandemic, communities are going to need just a strong state partner to lead COVID response and recovery efforts to take meaningful action on addressing climate change and to work in concert with locals to improve housing affordability and strengthen public schools. Um, So much is at stake. I don't think we're going backwards. As a mayor, I've been in the trenches making tough decisions and getting stuff done. And um, I want to continue to work on these and bring that vision, that same chutzpah that sense of urgency to the state house as your next lieutenant governor, working arm in arm with hopefully not just one but two women leading our state to uh, improve uh, working families every single day. <laughs> Am I under a minute, Trump?
0: You are. So you passed the test. Congratulations.
1: <laughs> Politician and, we, and lawyer in less than a minute. That's uh, that's a hard task.
0: Well, you did just fine. Where can listeners go for more information about your campaign?
1: Yeah, thanks so much for asking. Uh, If you go to kimdriscoll.org, you can learn more about me, about the campaign and how you can help. And we'd love to have as many folks as we can on board. We're building a strong statewide team and feel really good about this opportunity. You've
0: been listening to the Inside North Central Massachusetts podcast election series. We've been joined today by Salem Mayor Kim Driscoll, Democratic candidate for Lieutenant Governor. She'll be running in the Democratic primary happening on September 6th, and the general election will follow that the next month in November. Thank you so much for being a part of the program today.
1: Thanks, Travis. Appreciate you having me on.
0: You've been listening to Inside North Central Massachusetts. This podcast is produced by the North Central Massachusetts Chamber of Commerce. For more information on this episode, links to other episodes, or if you have any questions, please visit northcentralmass.com.